Welcome back, everybody. Episode number 30 of the Roses and Rhetoric podcast. Um, our show, we don't say podcast anymore. Off to a great start. But anybody's curious, this is a Friday. And uh, of course, normally we do our shows on Saturdays. And um, doing it a day early gave us less time to prepare. And so if you enjoy watching improv crash and burn, don't change that dial. Joining me as always, my charming co-host. Joseph Stanford. Very good. Well, Joe, I had a good week and i always want to check in with you to see how your week's going uh good week uh was spent the majority of the week recovering from my most recent san francisco trip um where we interviewed of course um dr guy bouvier bouvier Bouvier. if you you haven't checked out that episode go check it out number 29 and it was Um, a good episode it was a good episode i had a lot of fun talking talking to guy um if anybody's curious i did in fact say his last name wrong every single time on that episode and i do apologize for that but he was a wonderful guest and i had a lot of fun talking about that so i was talking about our, our show the other day to somebody and the way that i explained it or the way that i said what what motivates us to do the show among other reasons is that it gives us an excuse to explore topics we probably wouldn't learn about otherwise and i think the episode with guy last week was a good example of that yeah, no, Guy was a was an excellent example of that. I know neuroscience is something that we've always been interested in, and uh, it seems like we've just stumbled across the resources to be able to learn it. Yeah, stumbling stumbling is correct. <laughs> uh, I, I was thinking about um, you know, and, and of course, Guy had a really good, uh, a very a very good talent for explaining complex things to the audience. But uh, for anybody who's curious, one of the one of the episodes we're putting together, this will come out. A little bit later on but it's going to be kind of an intro neuroscience video that we're going to put together um, to kind of help explain some of the background to the episodes that we do about neuroscience as a topic and so if you're watching those episodes and they're a little confusing uh join the club that would be the same for joe and myself as well and uh, we, we recognize that in our working with one of our one of our friends uh cameron wellhide actually that you know kind of build kind of an intro video to make those other episodes um more and more comprehensible to to the people that are just listening that haven't had the ability to go and actually read the material that we're discussing uh, on the shows. But um, I thought it was a great time. I really enjoy learning how the brain works, and I you know still don't really have any idea how the brain works. But uh, I'm glad to know smart people like 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 you are working on those on those uh, questions. Great radio content. Um, no, I was going to say, I did, I did have one topic I wanted to, I wanted to branch off of that geek conversation. And it was this, uh, th- this came up a little bit during the actual episode with, with him, but it was this idea, we were talking to him about what innovations, what, what technology made his research possible. And I thought he gave a really interesting answer that I wanted to spend a little bit of, a little bit more time talking today about. And for people who haven't seen that episode, uh, obviously check it out, but you know, just kind of a, a brief recap here. Um, he does a lot of experiments on mice, but what he was, what he was telling us is that the novelty of his approach wasn't having a unique instrument or a unique technology, but he found a unique way to combine already existing technologies. And I think that seems to me, uh, if somebody is going to be uh, the garage inventor or something like that, I would imagine most of those people are probably innovating through that way, combining already existing things rather than really reaching the edge of some knowledge barrier and progressing forward from it. I guess that, that, that mm. just seems kind of intuitive to me that that's how they would, that's 
how they would do. And I was thinking of the example that we gave a few episodes back about um, the the briefcase on wheels that the person who invented that didn't invent the wheel or the briefcase, <clears throat> but he found a way to combine both of them into a novel technology. Um, and it was, it was that combination that had eluded people until that person invented it. Yeah, so it's like just finding two maybe seemingly unrelated aspects of neuroscience in this example and combining them together to create new findings and new learnings. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, like I was saying, if you enjoy watching improv crash and burn, I'll change that dialogue. No, we actually have a lot of good things to talk about today. Um, so I know we have a new segment coming up in a little bit. Uh, we're going to get to that in just a moment. Before getting that though, or two there though, I did want to uh, always give credit to one of our you know frequently talked about authors on the show, Nassim Taleb, talking about The Black Swan. I finished rereading The Black Swan this week. I actually bought a new copy. This is the second edition of the book. Um, for people who don't know, I did not know this until I bought this version, but um, he did publish a second edition of The Black Swan and included behind the main text a series of essays uh, that were quite enjoyable on the black swan. And one of the things that he gives in, in those uh, back essays is kind of like, you know, 10 lessons from the black swan or like, you know, 10 things to do with black swans. And so if you enjoy those, those, those kind of like top 10 lists or something like that, this book is uh, a nice addition as well. But I wanted to talk about one problem that comes up in the black swan that I thought is an interesting problem. And it's this idea with how we use um, our intuition and, and the knowledge that we have to make predictions about the past, not about the future, but about how we make um, these guesses about the past. And the example in the book that he gives involves ice cubes melting on a sidewalk. And so if you've you know, been alive for more than a few years and you see somebody put an ice cube on the street, you know with all certainty that that ice cube will, will melt into a puddle. Really no ambiguity, really no concern that that's not going to happen. That'll happen every time. On the other hand, if you are observing a puddle and someone tells you that it came from an ice cube and you imagine what that ice cube was shaped like, you really have no idea. That's just a pure guess. You really can't extrapolate back from the puddle to the shape of the ice, nor could you go from the puddle even knowing that it was ice. That puddle could have come from anywhere even though you can project forward from the ice cube melting to the puddle, you can't go back from the puddle to the ice cube. And that's interesting because normally we think that it's harder to predict the future than it is to predict the past. But in this example, it's actually the opposite. The future is very easy to predict, the past very hard to predict. And so when we're faced with a situation of trying to look at some occurrence in our, in our you know, modern frame, and we're trying to understand where it came from, it's very easy to give ourselves narratives that make sense, but just remember that any number of infinite narratives could converge onto whatever space you happen to be observing. And that uh, it may be the case that actually the forward projection is easier to do than the backward projection. And I thought that was neat because I had never really thought of that problem before. And um, like I said, usually we talk about error in forward projection, but here's an example where in fact that is uh, turned on its head a little bit. It's like a, it's like forensic analysis, like studying like crimes or cold cases or something like that. Right, where right. You, that where that is the actual art of studying the past and what had happened in the past. Yep. 
So yeah, I could see how that would be equally as unpredictable as predicting the future. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I, just, I guess it was one more topic on the Black Swan. And I was thinking about this more just as it relates to book reading in general. But um, I think we probably mentioned this before, but I'm trying to get in a habit of seeing the ending of a book as kind of the beginning of that journey rather than the ending of that journey. Um, and basically, you know, the idea is that once you finish a book, the next question should always be, how can you apply it to your life? And I think all of us can get in a bad habit. I know that I certainly have, uh, but getting in a bad habit of once you finish a book, you put it on the shelf and it's like a trophy or something. It's like, all right, on the shelf, done, walk away. And, you know, it may never have uh, any impact on you again. Um, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on ways of avoiding that ways of trying to make books more actionable to get more out of reading them because i know you and i have both had this problem before yeah yeah no that's a tough one personally for me uh i find that if i try to remember every single thing that's mentioned in a book and i try to start like applying everything that i read in that book to the t it kind of drives me like crazy and it's just it, it it seems infeasible but uh I think recently my approach has been more along the lines of, okay, let me read through this book. Let me read it in a way that my subconscious is, is processing it so that maybe it's not like my thinking mind, my prefrontal cortex that's processing the information. Maybe it's going somewhere deeper, like to some subconscious level and that that's where the real learning exists, or at least that's my theory. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not, but um, and then doing things like rereading a book is just more emphasis on that subconscious. And then you don't get all stressed out for like forgetting what you read and like right. applying it. I like that approach. Um, I, I definitely think that there is something about trying to figure out how to make a lesson in a book more of a habit than a conscious, you know, conceptual thought that you're having. And um, I think the only way of doing that, of making it a habit, you know, I guess in a way you would think, by doing something over and over again, you would hope that it just becomes a habit, that it, it gets in, embedded mm -hmm. into your thinking process without, without you having to actually make the effort. You just begin thinking this way. Um, because especially when you talk in all the, all the traps that you can fall into that, and it seems Club talks about, or Scott Adams or Cialdini, it's too much to remember everything. I mean, you're not going to yeah. remember every logical fallacy. Every detail, yeah. You're not going to remember it, it. That would be insane. Um, I think what's better is, one understanding the general premise of the books, the idea that mental biases exist, just that knowledge alone can ground you in a situation. So you're not assuming that you're approaching it with this perfectly objective framework, but that you have other forces at work behind the scenes. I think that that helps. And I think also what, what's nice too, is that in these books, whether it be Nassim or Scott Adams or, or Cialdini, they always give really good examples. And those anecdotes make it easier to remember. You can remember you know, mm. to see him talking about a funny story that happened to him involving something with the black swan. And that helps stick in your mind a little bit. It's this idea that, and this is why, you know, religious books all have parables. I mean, the Bible or the Quran or any other important religious text would have very, would have a lot less meaning if it was just a list of things not to do. But it's embedded behind a story that you can read and understand, and the characters bring these decisions to life. And through essentially having a relationship with a character, it makes those stories more entertaining. You know, the way that Nassim writes, I mean, it's very personal. It's, it's, it's not very formal. And so it sounds like a conversation. 
And that makes it in a way stick in your head more. At least that, that's what yeah. I, think. and I would say that the same is true with, with Adams and with uh, Cialdini as well. They make it personal and it sticks with you because of it. Yeah. And, and the telling the stories are through parables. It makes it anchored in your, yeah. in your brain and it's more digestible by stupid people. Right. Yes. Yes. Which is all of us. <laughs> which is, yeah. well, 50% of people have a below average IQ. Let, let me remind you that. That's right. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I am, I, I'm trying to take the rereading books more seriously and I've kind of have been exploring that this past year. And um, so far it's been good. I always am surprised, although I guess I shouldn't be, but I'm always surprised about how much I just have completely forgotten from from these books reading the first time you forget it you know mm-hmm. I, I first had that experience when i was um i forget what the situation was but at some point i didn't have internet this is when i was younger and i had this box at a family guy and i i found that even though i knew i knew that i had watched it all before that it had been so long that it was as if i hadn't seen it ever and it was just funny again because i forgot all the punchlines so yeah, a little bit of yeah, I, d- I don't know how they still crank out episodes and still make me laugh every time I watch it. I don't. And, and how they get away with some of the things they say on that show. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. For, for, uh, being, a, for being a lefty, uh, right. Fairlane says a lot of uh, very, very politically questionable things in that yeah. show. Yeah, Seth MacFarlane, definitely a comedy genius. You know, the, the writers at South Park, equally genius. Um, I don't know how they come up with it. I know, I, I should say, if you watch the South Park episode of Cartoon Wars, South Park gives their best attempt at understanding where Family Guy episodes come from. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I have enjoyed all of those shows. I grew up with Family Guy, South Park, all those shows are all great. And um, I don't know how they're still around. I mean, I, we're only, we're only on, on episode 30 and I'm wondering what are we going to be talking about next week? And uh, they've been doing this for like decades. And so uh, geniuses at work, I guess. But yeah, it's always good. Um, well, there we go. That, that was my, that was my, 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 what, my weekly plug for Nassim Taleb. I really think people should read this guy's books. I talk about them on almost every episode, probably get most of it wrong. If Nassim ever watches one of these, he's probably just like, what the hell is he talking about? Uh, go buy his books. Um, but uh, enough about that, Joe, enough about that. Let's get to the real reason we're here today, which is our new segment talking about Joe's briefcase. <laughs> Yeah, is is that my intro to uh, describe oh, my said, no, said briefcase? Let's do it in five minutes. Uh, let's <laughs> no, of course it is. Of course it is. Yes. No. Let's let, let's move on to our new segment, Joe's briefcase. And uh, Joe, tell us what where the segment came from and what we can expect. Okay. So as lo- as many of our listeners slash viewers know, um, and they're very familiar with another one of our segments or our popular segments called Joe's Inbox. <clears throat> which is always full of surprises. But this week, I'm happy to announce the beta testing or the piloting of a new segment, Joe's Briefcase. And this is, I I would like to use this forum to talk about something that is important to me. And it's important to me by the sheer fact that this is where I spend most of my day, which is at work. So today I have prepared some material for how to be successful in corporate America. And a lot of you might remember, I wrote a more satirical piece about this a while back. Um, This one's intended to be a little bit more serious, a little bit more pragmatic, have a little bit more, I don't know, realistic advice for people. Um, 
and I want to keep I want to keep this p uh, this this part as non-prescriptive as I can because I don't think that prescriptions work, and that people just generally don't take advice. So and I would let me catch you up. It's not <laughs> medical prescriptions, but prescriptive advice. Just to clarify, Joe's comment there. Anyways, Joe, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, we'll get to the medical prescriptions later. Okay. <laughs> that, that's our next segment. Joe, Joe's pill box. <laughs> yeah, Joe's pill box. <laughs> Joe's medicine cabinet. <laughs> yeah, Joe's medicine cabinet. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Joe's, Joe's expired. Joe's expired toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. I, I wanted to start this by saying that if you're one of the many people that uh, choose to live in the nine to five slavery, and I, I say choose because I do believe that it is a choice, I think that this advice will be helpful for you. Yes. And I say this best based off of seven years of my own personal experience in a Fortune 50 company, um, where I have repeatedly outperformed many of my peers and come up to a management position um, for which a lot of people think that I'm pretty young to be in. So I'm going to share with you some of these tips and tactics that I have developed over the past seven years. So rule number one, I would say is do not be a hero. So a lot of people think that you come to success in a company by through accomplishment, right? Like through achieving something like some flashy achievement or accomplishment that looks good. And then from that point forward, you just live as royalty. So that's not the case. It, it's much more important to not fuck up than to uh, achieve something. And I think this is the case for everything besides just business. Right, right. Um, so that's rule number one. And that's the most important. Rule number two is this theory that I came up with called act as a lubricant for the system. Hmm. So your sheer purpose as an employee, if your goal is to succeed in advance, is to lubricate the process you don't want to slow down any progress you don't want to be a roadblock you don't want to be the pinch point for any progress and projects or anything like that you want you want to be easy to work with even if that means like putting your ego aside and telling other people they're right when they're not uh that's just got to be daily practice you got people got to like you you got to be stoic you got to you got to be able to put all that emotion to the side and just say okay i'm here to act as a grease for this wheel and I'm not going to be the pinch point. I'm not going to be the one seizing up the wheel. I'm going to let someone else do that. I'm going to let someone else throw a tantrum and do that or be emotionally reactive and do that. I'm just going to, I'm going to simplify my emails. I'm going to keep them short so people can read them. You know, I'm not going to write novels like big run on paragraphs that go on for 12, 15 lines. No, like two or three lines max. Get the point across, make the calls when I need to. Don't slow down progress. So that's rule number two. And rule number three is to schedule routine one-on-ones with your supervisors. And this is important from a, a persuasion and subconscious uh, reason, because the people you spend the most time around are the people that are going to be on your mind and the people you're going to be thinking about the most. And if you can develop a little comfortable real estate in your supervisor's brain, the bigger, the bigger, that real estate is the more they're going to think about you and the more that you're going to be on their mind and the more likely that you'll get a raise or get a favorable uh, review at the end of the year. So in these one-on-ones and a lot of times like, so 
one, uh, supervisors will schedule one-on-ones and then like the day of, they'll be like, Hey, I don't have anything for you. Do you still want to have this? Do you still want to talk? And then most of the time people are like, Oh yeah, free hour back. Like, yeah, we don't have to talk. We'll just chat next week. And then same thing next week. But no, I say, don't do that. You always say yes. Yes. You want to talk to the supervisor. You want to meet on a routine basis with the supervisor. And that's going to reap a lot of benefits in the long term, especially if all your peers are, are falling for it and saying like, oh, yeah, I don't have anything. Let's we'll skip it this week. It, it gives you a leg up in that competition because it is a competition because there's only so much bonus dollars. There's only so many raised dollars, only so many promotions that can be given out each year. Um, sticking with supervisors. Uh, so when you're in these one-on-ones there is one important a couple important questions that you can ask to make it to make it worthwhile so you you always want to ask your supervisor at the end of it say okay what help do you need from me what help do you need from me and then that kind of that messes with the supervisor because most people don't hear that most bosses don't get that like they're used to either delegating but they don't they're not familiar with, with when a a uh, an employee asks that of them and this actually happened to me before where I asked a long time boss at my job. I said, okay, what help do you need from me? And then the boss at the time said, huh, no one's ever asked me that before. And then, and then at that point I knew I was onto something. So every, every one-on-one since then, regardless of the manager, regardless of the boss, even for like employees, like I'll ask that of them and see what they say. And I think that pays dividends, but with respect to the supervisor and your interactions with the supervisor, I would advise this framework that your purpose needs to be to make their job as easy as possible. And I say that because I think, what would I want for my employees? I want my employees to make my job as easy as possible. So what does that mean? That means, that means essentially reducing the friction in the system, acting as a lubrication. Like when a boss asks you for something, you send it, you send the response and then you send like a follow-up like, okay, here's the answer. Do you want me to forward this over to this person? Or here's the answer. Do you want me to follow up and collect this data? Or here's the answer. Do you want me to do this? Like, just think like, what would make your life easier from your employees? Do you want an employee that just does exactly what you asked and doesn't offer to do the rest of it? Or do you want an employee that's going to do your job for you? I don't know. I would pick the second one. So I, that, that should be the goal. And because at the end of the day, like your boss's opinion, unless you have some like devoted, like passionate duty for being at your job or performing your work, uh, all that really matters is what your supervisor thinks of you. Because the sooner you get raises, the sooner you can start putting that money away, the sooner that money starts compounding, the sooner you can get out of the nine to five, the sooner you can get out of corporate America. If that's your goal. I mean, maybe some people have a passion project for their job and uh, this advice might not be the best, but that that would be the three topics that I would recommend our listeners at home follow if they want to be successful at their job. Now, I do have a couple bonus tips outside the three topics. Bonus tip number one, if you're a minority, make it known. <laughs> and I, I say this one from experience. Uh, at my At my corporate job, I have been told point blank on more than one instance that I cannot have certain jobs because of my race, because I was mistaken as being white. So, <laughs> well, I am white, but I'm also Mexican. I, I also have Mexican heritage. My, right. I, I grew up in a Spanish speaking home. Okay. 
And once I cleared that up with my, with my manager at the time or my soon to be manager, uh, I actually got the position. So if you have a Mexican card to play, if you have a black card to play, if you have a whatever card to play, definitely play it, especially if it's a big company, it's, it's only going to help you out. Um, one last piece of advice is to think out loud. And I think this also applies to more than just business, but think out loud with like your, your decisions. Like if you're a decision maker in a given situation, in a meeting, in a Zoom call, like whatever, don't just say, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to do this. And then everyone just says, okay, and you move on. Like just talk out loud. Like, well, I think we should do this because like it makes sense that this is on this side, this is on that side. I think it makes sense to meet in the middle. You like show your work. And as long as you're showing your work for your decisions, the people in the meeting can either refute the, your logic for your decisions or they have an understanding because they, they, they understand that it's based in logic at that point and not just an arbitrary like, okay, we're doing this. It's my way or the highway, like deal with it. So that would be my advice for how somebody in today's society can survive and thrive in corporate america <laughs> and thrive very good i like i like protecting your downside which i think was the first one that you said it's more important to avoid don't mistakes yeah don't be a hero <clears throat> i would say i think that there's definitely some truth to that i think um you know i the, the old joke that i've heard before and that i've put it out a few times is the idea that you know as long as you can play the game tomorrow you're all right as long as you don't die, as long as you don't go bankrupt, as long as your finances don't collapse, you know, whatever money you lost, as long as you still have enough to get through to tomorrow, you're okay. Um, I got that from Nassim Club actually talking about when he was with, uh, when he was a trader or when he was with other traders, that was always the, the, the metric they would use. Is it you have a good day? So if you, if you come back tomorrow, you had a good day. That's just got to get a good day. And um, I mean, especially if you think about, you know, if you're working at a large facility, like I know where you work at, if you think about how expensive some of the equipment there really is, I mean, it's probably much more important to not destroy anything. I mean, mm -hmm. it could be a real big deal if a reactor goes or a cooling tower goes or some kind of, you know, whatever processing equipment. These are like millions of dollars in capital costs that are that are being used. It's probably preferable to not break anything versus pushing something to the limit and hoping it doesn't break. Like I would imagine not breaking is pretty high on people's agenda uh, when they go to work every day. Yeah, you gotta, if you picture it, it's like, it's like you're building a wall. It's like you're building a wall brick by brick. And then sometimes you mess up and a brick gets taken away from your wall. And sometimes you do the right thing and like bricks get added to your wall. But any one individual like mess up or fuck up, like it's not gonna hurt you. Like even th there's a popular phrase in the media that, bad press only lasts for like a week max. So don't, don't get too encumbered if you see some, a couple bricks fall out of your wall, but you just have to have a good system in place where you're, you're, you're keeping things flowing, you're keeping things moving and you just keep adding brick, brick by brick to that wall. And then eventually after a few years, that wall is going to be pretty fucking big. I um, also like the lubrication one, keeping things moving. I think this has universal applicability uh, outside of even just working, but um, I like this one a lot as well. Uh, the idea of acting like a lubricant and the idea 
You know, of all the things that's important to me these days, I really appreciate people who are punctual, who are on time, who make deadlines. That mm-hmm. to me is a crucial, crucial thing. Um, I think by the time you're an adult, you want to be responsible for your schedule. You made the joke before about Joko Willink who could get hit by an ambulance and still arrive on time to the meeting. Like that's, I, you know, you should hit by so an ambulance. By, yeah, hit by an ambulance. Um, you, you ought to be able to be on time for things and you ought to be able to meet that line. I think by the time you're working, by the time you're an adult, that seems like a reasonable expectation for people. And outside of even work, it seems like a good expectation for anybody in any situation in their life. Be on time for things. Pretty simple request. Anybody can do it. We all have that capacity in our lives to do it. Um, and it makes things yeah. run smoother. I think it makes things run smoother when you're trying to get things accomplished. No, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's a, that's, a, that's a real important one. That's probably like 60% of the equation, if not more. Um, in fact, I was talking to a friend of mine who was, uh, he's a technician at a company. And he was talking about how he was excelling in his own group and his own projects. And I, I asked him like what he thought hit the reason for his success was. And he said, literally, I just show up. <laughs> Like literally I just show up on time to things and that's all it takes. Cause half the people can't even do that. Half the people right. can't even show up or like meet deadlines. So I, uh, yeah. I, I think we all have our first experience with poor punctuality when you begin doing group work and whether high school or college for some people uh, we've all been in the situation of giving up the work. Everybody has a deadline. You can count it count on it. Maybe a third of the team, maybe half of the team. As you get further in college, this is less of a problem, really more like freshman, sophomore year, where you're taking a bunch of random classes plus your core classes. Um, just pay attention to how many people can't make, can't reach a deadline. I mean, it is, yeah. it is astonishing. Uh, or astounding. Who, or, astounding. <laughs> it's astounding, really. It's frightening. Um, who, you know, I, let, let me give an example with, uh, with uh, taxes. I pay my taxes early every year without fail every year i, I still haven't paid mine <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i pay mine early every year um when you when you prioritize things or when you when you're punctual with things it makes your own life easier i mean that and that's what you come to realize deadlines are stressful because you're procrastinating and if you don't they're less stressful and so if you're if you're a freshman in college or if you're a sophomore in college and you're thinking what can i do to make my time here more enjoyable the first tip, do the reading. The second tip, be punctual. Just be organized. Just be punctual. That is at least half of the game for anybody in college right now. And uh, if you're in a group and doing group work, uh, get it done on time. Don't be the, uh, the uh, asshole who's always late submitting things or doesn't have it ready or something. Or Don't do that. Get it done. Yeah, meet those deadlines. And, and another thing, and this might be a, a little bit more of a controversial take, but uh, there's a lot of why, why lot start of, why start being controversial now, right? I mean, why? Right. This, this, this is Joe's briefcase here. Like, we can be as controversial as we but want. It's, it's only Joe's briefcase and not my briefcase. Anyway, Joe, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, throw a little disclaimer in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a lot of times, there's especially with big companies, there's a lot of things that happen, a lot of business processes that just don't make sense. Like there's no, there's no logic behind it. And this is something that I failed at doing earlier in my career or something that I did earlier in my career was 
they would lay out a plan. They would lay out a strategy or something that just literally doesn't make any sense. They would try to put on some system that would generate a lot more work for other people and really wouldn't gain us anything. And I used to poke holes at it. Like I used to be like, okay, hi. Yeah, this doesn't make sense. Like, what are we going to do here? And I would be that, that squeaky wheel, if you will. Um, and I learned that being the squeaky wheel only leads to pain. <laughs> it only leads to stress. It only leads to more work for you. It doesn't lead to any real change in the system. Yeah. It just, me, it just leads to turmoil. <laughs> let me, let, let me throw a proposition out for you. Never raise, I, I don't, I'm not saying I believe this. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking maybe you would believe this. Never raise a problem that you are not willing to fix. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, excellent way. that's basically what you're saying, right? Don't. That's an excellent way of putting it. Yeah. But it, it, it's almost a little bit more than that. Like, even sure. if it is something I'm willing to fix, it just, it's a net loss for me. It's bricks taken out of my wall because I'm being the squeaky wheel. I'm making a deal. I'm changing the plan. I'm now the boss has to replan the whole event or the whole strategy. And it just, it, maybe it helps out the company in the long run. Doesn't help out me in the long run. Doesn't help me out in the short term. So nowadays I, 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 it's, I hate to say it, like it doesn't make sense, but I literally second guess like correcting mistakes that I hear in meetings. Like just yeah. bad processes, bad things. I just, whatever, not worth my stress. Yeah, I'm just going to bite my lip. I'm going to sure. do what they say. I don't agree with it. Doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. But you know what? Well, let's, let's, so let's gonna keep this. the wheel spinning. Right, right. So let's, let's take this and formulate it in a way that's, more positive than just not bring up the negative, which would be, I think something to, to the following, like when you're starting a company, when you're in a company, when it's growing processes that made sense when the company was small or growing may not make sense as the business gets bigger and a process can be bad and still work. And that isn't a reason to ignore it. And I, I think there's just, I, I've encountered this myself where um, a lot of companies these days are, are, are running pretty hard and, you know, trying to be lean and very efficient, but that what that takes away is the ability to revisit systemic issues in the company because nobody, like basically what you're saying, nobody wants to be the one to have that debt fall on because it's not clear what they're really going to get from it. And especially if it's only a process that is ancillary to whatever group they're in, they may not really care. And so... I think, you know, we, we've been kind of throwing around the idea of getting some people on the show that are in the process of starting their own companies. And I think an interesting question for them would be, look, how do you plan on incorporating scaling into processing, you know, and, 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 and communication, you know, throughout the chain, whatever it may be? How do you plan on doing that as your company grows? Because I imagine a lot of things that work well for like five people work very poorly for like 10,000 people. I would suspect yeah. that would be the case. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that, that, that would be very interesting to talk to some of these people about. I think that's some good foreshadowing for some future episodes. Yes, stay tuned. Um, I, I would like to make one distinction that this strategy that I've just outlined is uh, it's, it's applicable to a corporate job that you're just using as a way to make money and achieve your own financial independence or whatever. Sure. Once you start getting into your own businesses, your own companies, your own passion product projects, all, all this goes out the door. 
like you don't have to you don't have to uh, declare your ethnicity for uh, your own passion project or business like it's irrelevant at that point right right and then like you don't if it's your own project like you don't have to tell you don't have to make an honest effort to make deadlines it just comes naturally it comes packed with its own motivation to do so and and you can start calling out things that don't make sense like bad processes like that's that's encouraged in fact it might be the exact opposite of the advice i laid out for these startup small small businesses right especially if right. they're yours or, or just any influential part right any, any job that you care about it would make sense yeah to put in. yeah i i like that too Let's okay, I, 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 for the record i do care about my job i, I believe it, you. I believe at least for the time being this will, this is always under the guise of, of satire when joe talks about his corporate life um Actually, so anything that I say that sounds bad, let's just count under the guise of satire. All right, from this point forward. I'll just stop recording right now. Uh, <laughs> let's let's talk about FaceTime. I like FaceTime. I think this is a good idea. Um, I I think FaceTime is important for a lot of reasons, uh, and I, I I mean all the persuasion points you raised earlier is, is good as well. Um, let me let me give another reason why I think FaceTime is important with. Uh, whether it be your supervisor, but also your coworkers, is uh, especially now everything feels disconnected because a lot of things are going virtual and going on Zoom. Um, I, I, I still think that there are some problems that are just much easier to solve with people in a room together than it is over a computer or over email. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I still think that. I don't know if I'm the only one who does, but I mean, it, to me, if I look at problems that people are trying to handle over email and it seems like it would take two minutes to do in person, um, I think FaceTime is valuable for that reason as well. There are some things where technology is just a huge pain in the ass and just talking to somebody in person completely alleviates all of those problems. And mm-hmm. a really a good example of that would just be anytime you need like a yes or no answer from something, it seems sometimes email is a good way to get that. But if it's, if it's a hard email to like articulate, or if it's a question about a thing that you've been spending a lot of time talking about and you're worried that your email won't have enough background information or something like that. Uh, I think sometimes just an in-person conversation where you, you can provide information as needed is a, is a nice place to be in as well. And I, I think it just makes things more efficient sometimes uh, in trying to go over the email or text or phone call or whatever else it may be. And that phone call would, 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 be, would be closer to an, an in-person meeting as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the reason for that is because, well, largely the facts just don't matter. Like they seem like they matter. Like the company makes it seem like they matter. But at the end of the day, it's it really just comes down to how people feel about you. And for example, like if you ask like a tough question over email, like the, the people don't really get to see the face behind the person asking the questions. And that would subconsciously influence the answer they give. But if you are in that FaceTime, if you are with them in a room, it's a lot easier to to, to, uh, to come to terms with each other. It's a lot easier for each party to compromise when you're looking across the, the table from someone. Now, I, I do, okay, you were talking about that, the emails. Mm-hmm. It's funny because there is like a meme in circulation or like a little saying on the internet that I see that's like, oh, th- this could have been an email or something. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Have you seen that? Uh, I can imagine what the meme is making fun of. That you it's like, like, it's like a picture... Yeah, it's like a picture of Bernie Sanders like posting up at like the oh, State right. of the Union or something. And it's like yeah. total yeah. discontent on his face. And it's like, yeah. this could have been an email. Yeah, fair enough. And it's like, <laughs> so maybe there's not as much truth to that meme 
as people suspect there is just based off yeah. what we, we just talked about. Yeah, I, I, I can just think times in myself where I thought I was being really clear over email. And <laughs> yeah, that's not a thing. It's impossible. <laughs> no, I just completely abominated or just abolished, you know, whatever I was trying to talk about. It, uh, it, it's even so like where I work out, we also have an IM app as well built in. My, we have Microsoft Teams. So it's just like an IM chat thing too. And there are times where I'll think, you know, I have a great, you know, this is perfect Teams message, you know, and it's a real quick thing. I'll be brief. I'll get it in there. Send it. Response. Like, yeah. Exactly. Response. What? <laughs> I was like, uh, well, I thought, I thought I was being clear, but I wasn't. And I just completely confused the other person. It's like, I think we need to escalate this. <laughs> exactly. No, I've seen that. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you, you spend all this time writing a perfect, like a beautiful, well-crafted email. Yeah. Yeah. You send it out thinking it's going to be a hole in one, easy money. Yeah. And then, yeah, you just get smashed. Smash. It's really hard. It's a really useful skill to be able to put yourself in someone else's perspective. And it is not a skill that I have yet. <laughs> I'm working on it, but I don't have it yet. Uh, and uh, that's life. That's, that's getting there. All right. Let's, let's go to thinking out loud. Um, I oh, yes. so explain this one again. So when you, when you, when you said thinking out loud, I was imagining in my head, I, what, I, what I thought you were going to say was different than what you ended up saying. So kind of just okay. a quick summary of thinking out loud and then let's dive into a little bit more. So thinking out loud, AKA showing your work ah, is okay. where you, where, as you like talk through your decision-making process, because in meetings, you have to make decisions. That's the point of meetings is to make decisions. Right. And there's nothing worse than someone that just arbitrarily makes decisions saying we're doing this. Cause I said, so or we're doing that. Cause I said so. And it's often hard to make decisions in these meetings, at least for me personally, because it's like, there's a lot of good points on both sides. Like there's a lot of forces on either side and it's not really that apparent to me, what is the right decision. So instead of just taking a gamble and picking one side and running with it, like, I think there's a utility in just talking through it. Like, okay, we got X, Y, Z reason on this side, X, Y, Z reason on this side. Um, I'm kind of leaning this way for, for this reason. And then it, it gives like a, it makes everyone else feel involved. Like they, you're showing your work. People can see how you arrived at that decision. Maybe they'll be more fired up to follow through on it because they understand where it came from. Um, yeah. And it's just, I don't think a lot of people think that way. I think a lot of people just think like, oh, I'm, I'm in charge here. This is my decision to make. I'm just going to do it. We're going to run with it and everyone's going to like it. I like, okay. So that, I like that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and in a sense, it kind of sounds like what, you, what could also evolve from that is that by thinking out loud, you may actually engage the group in a conversation mm. about the thought process that could lead to another solution that you kind of began. And I, I always feel yeah. like, one thing we talk about that we've talked about before is how we attach ourselves to our ideas, even though we probably shouldn't do that. And if it's, if, if you present an idea as your idea and somebody challenges it, that's going to feel hurtful to you versus yeah. if you present your idea as the starting point of a conversation and you expect it to change as it is discussed out loud among other people, Maybe that's a way to kind of inoculate yourself a little bit against the feeling of having your idea attacked. If you start off by framing it as the starting point, maybe you'll be more open to people's criticism of that idea that you're trying to work towards into some solution. 
Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think that the biggest thing that holds people back in their jobs is is their emotional response to things like like that exactly what you just mentioned like people are afraid to throw out their opinions because they're afraid those opinions are going to get ridiculed and they're going to take it personally so by by showing your work it it makes your separates your ideas from you and puts them out there and then people can attack it and you don't get offended yeah and i and i i that's think that's a great point i think that's a thing that we could all be better at doing and in a way, it's kind of like we were talking about a book earlier. It's, it's, I think all of us need to get better at seeing whatever space we're in as the starting point and not the finish line. I think a lot of conversations go poorly because somebody shows up to the conversation with the finish line in mind rather than the starting line in mind. And it's hard to have a conversation when you think you already have the answer and it's even harder if the other person thinks that they have the answer. And it's even harder when those answers aren't the same. So yeah. if you could convince yourself that you were always at the beginning of something, uh, Peter Tila talks about protecting the, the, the starting of a company because it's when it's starting that it, it can be the most nimble, the most agile, it can change itself the most. Protecting the starting is really important. And a little microcosm of that is in any conversation. Protecting the starting of the conversation, where you're framing things, where you're explaining where you're coming from, where you're outlining your, your own biases or whatever, maybe that is an important part of the conversation to protect. Because once you move on from that and you've kind of embedded these things, it's very hard to go back. And that's what I think where a lot of arguments come from is not taking enough time framing the important um starting blocks i said starting line because I'm, I'm a fucking idiot uh starting blocks <laughs> of the conversation uh will help it go a little more smoothly well i like that setting the stage yeah. is, is is what you're what you're talking about and yeah. another way to start the stage for for meetings in my opinion is uh ske- schedule them for shorter do a 15 minute meeting like don't schedule it for a full hour because guess what if you schedule a meeting for a full hour it's going to fucking go the full hour. <laughs> you schedule it for 30 minutes. It's only going to go 30 minutes. Meetings. Are for a vacuum. Right. Yes. Right. Right. It's only going to go 15. Like it's, and you're going to achieve the same thing, whether it's 15, 30, an hour. Yeah. It's just, you're going to waste a lot more time with the hour. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I like all of these. I like all of these. Let me, <laughs> let me give, so brought up diversity earlier. Let me, let me do a little I and D. So, I had a really good, and, and so I'm saying I and D, let me not use the terminology, inclusivity, diversity, you know, the way that we've had mm-hmm. this explained to us, diversity is, is you know, the, the makeup of the company, but inclusion is about making sure that people in the company feel welcome and that they feel that their input is valuable. And mm-hmm. um, I think, and I think you would agree, I think that that's important, that whoever yeah. you're working with Everyone's input needs to be respected. Everyone's input needs to be valued. And I think diversity is really easy to measure, but inclusivity is much harder. It's really Mm -hmm. hard to make sure that when you're in a meeting, when you're with a group of people, especially when it's coworkers, you know, I know you work at a big company. You may be meeting people for the first time, you know, and it can be really every day, every day, right? It can be really hard when you have a diverse group of people to make sure that we're all doing our part to make every voice heard and that we're making sure that people's opinions are, are being 
uh, heard as well. We were just talking a moment ago about thinking out loud. Um, a problem that I have is I am typically a very loud voice in a room. Um, I'm what people call extroverted. And um, the problem with that is oftentimes I'm also the dumbest voice in the room. And so when you give the dumbest voice in the room the loudest microphone, you're crowding out a whole lot of people. And part of, part of being inclusive is making sure that you, people like me don't do that, that we don't you know, you talk forever and never give anybody a chance to speak. Yeah. I, know, I know you have hog, no idea what that's, what that's like. But, uh, hog the spotlight. Hog the spotlight. Um, it's important not to do that. And of course, in the, in the IND framework, it means making sure that, um, that everybody's voice is heard in a, in a meeting. And I know my, my wife is a, is, a, is a female engineer and, you know, she always tells me, you know, how important that is. And then it's really, it's really easy to kind of not notice it. And it's really easy to assume, oh, well, maybe that person's just quiet or maybe that person doesn't have anything to bring to the table. It's important to make that extra step and in, 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 in a sense, make sure that that's the case and not just assume it. Because, um, you know, look, I think, I think all of us in our different ways are trying to work towards a more inclusive, more diverse world. And part of, this, part of these stepping stones to do that is not just to have people in the room but to make sure I, the, the analogy that my company uses is the idea of it's not just about inviting somebody to the dance and making sure that they're also dancing. You know, that's a nice way to kind of visualize it. I, I kind of like that. It's a nice way to kind of frame it in our, in our heads. Um, let me ask yeah. you this. Why did you pick briefcase? Briefcase. Did you bring a briefcase to work? Uh, no, I bring a, I bring a backpack to work, but oh, you're one of those backpack people. <laughs> One of those was. Let, yeah. let me let me tell you something. I am all about diversity, except for people that bring backpacks to work. I have no respect yeah. for you. I, you know you don't belong. I, that, that is for that is for school, Joe. Uh, well, work is a learning process, Jim. I can't believe it. I want everybody who's still bringing a backpack. And let me tell you, right, explain to me this. I see, I see people who do this. They have a backpack, but they carry it by the top handle. What is that? What are, what are they doing? Can you explain that to me? Why not buy a briefcase? Do you wear your backpack? Get some rollers for it. Do you wear your backpack on the straps at least? Yeah, of course. Sometimes of course, I do like the cool guy one strap, but yeah, most of the time it's two. Let me tell you about that one strap. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Let me tell no, you. I don't want to hear. Okay, it. let me tell you why backpacks are good. Fine, backpacks are good for one reason: pockets. Pockets. What? A briefcase is are you going one to big battle? Cavity. Are you a Navy it's SEAL? One big cavity. One yeah. big cavity. So it's a cavity in your mouth. Let's make it a good thing. Who gives a shit? It's, it's not a good thing. Hole. Yeah, that's my point. Not big a good old hole. <laughs> oh, wait. The briefcase look. is a big old hole? Look, you, yeah. The briefcase is just one big cavity. One big there's no, all right, there's all nothing right. else to put things in. Like so you, you need to be able to put your mouse in a different pocket than your pens. Like if you put your pens in with like your notebooks, what if your pen explodes? Oh, what great! You your whole, your whole cavity every, is covered in ink. Every every briefcase has a slot on the on the flap for pens and pencils. Every single one. You're not buying. What are you talking about? This is, I, this I, is like I'm a regulation. That's probably required. Probably a law. I'm just saying. I think you want like your... backpacks, and I think that these people need to grow up. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> Even if they're just doing the one strap method? Why would you do the one strap method? The only benefit of a backpack would be to use two straps. Why would you do the one strap? Why wouldn't you buy a messenger bag? 
<laughs> those those fucking, those fucking horrible ass things. You ever see somebody bike with one of those things where it's just crashing uh, into their knee? I mean, it is the that that's got to be the worst fucking invention of all time. Those it's the ultimate hipster move. Those the those are the worst move. invention of all time. I say go briefcase, go backpack if you you know feel the need. I guess, but those messenger packs. I mean, no, that 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 is a scam. That's a scam. It's like it's like erasable pins. It's just a complete scam. Well, what does that do for your posture? What does that do for your ergonomics? No, yeah. Pulling you to one side, like Quasimodo. Yeah. It's not going to be good for anybody. <laughs> you imagine that? Quasimodo. It's like, it's like you're doing with your lunch strap. You're going to walk around looking like you got, the, got, got uh, hit by a twister or something. You're going to look horrible. And listen, you yeah, know how that backpack is. Imagine if I had a backpack on I would just... I would really, I'd be in a wheelchair for crying out loud. I'm like, God. Yeah, you'd be, you'd be upright. <laughs> I'd be upright. I'd be uptight. I'd be sick. I'd be dead. <laughs> what else do I have written down here? It's all improv, people. We don't do any, any scripting on this show. Um, no, none at let all. Me, let me, let me, we, we have an album that we thought we'll end on in just a second. Let me, let me go to one more thing. I was thinking about myself. You know, I was thinking about speaking to people like myself. You know, sometimes we complain too much. And uh, I imagine, oh God, I hope I'm wrong, but I imagine some of our listeners might be in high school. I fucking hope that I'm wrong, but uh, maybe in college, let's hope. And um, I imagine most of our audience is imaginary, <laughs> but if they're real, um, if they're real, <laughs> I was thinking, let's all, let's all think of some questions we can ask. Let's, let's take questions that are kind of low energy questions and transforming them into high energy questions. And one, one low energy question that we hear a lot, that we probably have said a lot, is uh, when am I going to use this? When am I going to use this? You're in school, you're learning. When am I going to use this? Well, let me give you a better approach. I may have said this before, but it's worth repeating. Rather than asking that loser thing kind of question, and that's loser thing, when can I use this? Close mind, not a lot of imagination. Why not ask yourself, how can I use this? You're going to be in school anyways. You may as well make the most of it. And if you are in a classroom where people are teaching you something, think of how you can apply it. Don't think that you can't. Think of how you can. You can, you can apply it on the test. You can apply it on the test. You can apply yeah. it on the podcast with one of your good friends. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You do a lot of good things. So that's the challenge. Thinking not when, but how you can use information um, as, it, uh, as it comes your way. Um, Okay, I said we had an album of the week. So because we are recording on Friday, our album of the week will not be ready until a little bit later on. And we are going to post the album of the week as a separate short video sometime next week. Uh, so, so keep a lookout for that. Um, Joe, I think we have gotten a lot of good press, a lot of good response to our albums of the week. Tell us a little bit about the feedback we've been getting so far from these uploads. Oh, ph phenomenal uh, engagement! Um, actually, on our on our uh, the official Roses and Rhetoric Instagram uh, handle Roses underscore Rhetoric, uh, as you know, we always post the album of the week on there along with the review, and we got some attention from some of the actual artists from a recent post. Um, for a lot, one of our most recent albums, I think it was from about two weeks ago, "Golden Hour Silent Mile" by Daniel Rosen. Um, the drummer from the album actually reached out and, and liked the video. Um, blue check drummer, you know, tens of thousands of uh, subscribers. 
uh, along with the multi-Grammy award-winning trombone player featured on the album as well, Frank Cohen. So I just want to give a shout out to Frank Cohen and Eric Slick, the drummer, um, for the engagement and the respect that they've been uh, uh, giving to our album of the week. Our, our musical correspondent is works very hard on these reviews and these album selections, and I'm happy to see that he's getting some positive feedback from the artists themselves. And I really like the tastings that he gives as well. I know that you like that part of the uh, review as yes. well. And uh, oh, yes. I, I'm curious, as our channel grows, I'm curious to see how many people start kind of engaging with those tasting suggestions and uh, putting them into practice, let's say. Um, I'm really looking forward to that as well. So no doubt about it, we'll have a good album of the week right up coming up for some time midweek. A little, a little sneak peek at the album is called Kioku, and it's by DJ Crush. By DJ Crush. And so if anybody Crush with wants a K. To, Crush with a K. So if anybody, anybody wants to listen to that now, and prepare yourself for the write-up. Uh, feel free to do so, of course. And um, it should be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to that album. We've only, I've really only had good suggestions for AOWs, so I'm looking forward to this one as well. Um, I want to give one more shout out, Joe, and it's one of our early guests on the show, and it's uh, Jack Ernest over at the Rose Best Podcast. Um, we've been having a lot of fun with Jack engaging on Twitter, and so anybody listening here, be sure to check out jack's podcast as well also follow jack on twitter he's following us you'll see him in our in our follow uh people but um great guy great great show be sure to follow him this friend reno on the world's best podcast and uh joe i'm looking at my notes and i believe i believe that is everything that i had written down for today's show a clean yeah. a clean bill of health for the pod for the for, for the show clean bill of health for the show um Anything you wanted to add before we close out? No, all, all out of improv for today. All out of improv. I would say that we did not crash and burn. It was a bumpy landing, perhaps a nice smooth gliding into the Hudson, just like our good friend, Captain Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Uh, no, everybody survived as far as I know. And everybody survived here as far as I know. So, uh, no, a lot of fun today. Um, Joe, Joe's new segment, uh, Joe's briefcase, I'm sure they'll be making uh, an appearance in a, in, a, in a theater near you. Um, but, uh, be sure to follow us. I'll, I'll put this out real quick. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at roses underscore rhetoric. Be sure to follow us on uh, Instagram, same, and then Joe as well at Jose four underscore Squarevo. And then also our website, www.rosesandrhetoric.com. I'm Jimmy Haggis on Africa, Joseph Stanford. Until next time, ciao.